1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Ruth Rogaski, Associate Professor of History and Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University, and she'll be talking about her new book, Knowing Manchuria, Environments, the Senses and Natural Knowledge on an Asian Borderland, which was published in 2022 by University of Chicago Press. The question of how certain parts of the world acquire certain labels and reputations is often an intriguing one, from why European colonialists thought that sea monsters lurked at the edges of maps, to why East Asian visitors to Paris or London today feel let down by the messy realities of those places so different from their ideal types. The region known to some across time as Manchuria has had an especially wide range of ideas projected onto it, as diverse peoples have framed this vast space, according to shifting political, spiritual, or scientific priorities, and through the epistemologies and technologies of their time. The distinct approaches to knowing Manchuria, taken by Manchu emperors, Chinese exiles, European missionaries, Korean poets, indigenous shamans, Russian botanists, Japanese colonists, and socialist planners, among, believe it or not, some others, in many ways have brought this place into existence, and these form the focus of Ruth Rogaska's extraordinary new book. Forming a deep exploration of the historical actors and rich ecologies of this region, this tome takes us on multiple journeys, many of them literal, into how different people at different moments sought to understand the Manchurian forests, mountains, plains, and earth that surrounded them, whether they came here voluntarily or not. Today, Manchuria is itself a contested term, And it can seem as though regional centers, particularly Beijing and Moscow, would rather not know the place at all. Those seeking to promote a multipolar order of global powers interacting on an abstract world stage find it inconvenient to consider fractious layered borderlands. Consequently, Rogaski's multi-perspectival and multilingually sourced history of different ways of knowing and of entangled relations between people, place and nature is all the more valuable an account of a region which we should all know better." So I'm happy to say, Ruth Rogaski, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me, Ed. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: Well, uh, as I was mentioning to you off also a great chance for me to talk about uh, something which is absolutely the core of my interests and, and fascination. So I'm looking forward to the chat. Um, but before we get into the contents of the book, uh, perhaps I'll ask you about your kind of trajectory to this point, your academic background, and how you became interested in this uh, fascinating region.
0: Uh, Okay, well, um, so my first book was about a different place with a different approach, uh, hygienic modernity, focused on local history in Tianjin, uh, the history of medicine, history of public health. And as I was doing that research, so this was quite some time ago, when I was interviewing some public health workers in the city, uh, they started talking about the patriotic hygiene campaign and uh, of the of the early nineteen fifties and how that was uh, in response to America's use of germ warfare in the Northeast. And uh, of course, I, I had never heard of that. Uh, there really wasn't that uh, was not a widely known episode, or the, the allegations were not widely known in the states. And uh, when I started to look at some of the materials uh, surrounding the allegations and the investigations, I found the the massive report edited uh, in part by Joseph Needham uh, that uh, brought together the various scientific investigations uh, done in locales in uh, northeast China that attempted to prove the use of germ warfare. And one of the the main thing that I noticed about it was that all the bibliographies, all the scientific literature used to prove what was indigenous nature and what was exogenous nature. Uh, All of the scholarship, or the vast majority of the scholarship, was written by uh, those who were not indigenous. In other words, they're foreign scientists. So really, the book, just started off um, many years ago as, as being curious about how scientists from around the world wound up in uh, this region and, and how they struggled to make sense of the region, and then how that scientific knowledge was used toward the building of at, at, at initially, right the, the, the PRC polity. So that was the genesis of it uh, many, many moons ago.
1: Gotcha. Well, yeah, and you have that kind of background in in at least North China, I suppose, in terms of uh, yeah previous uh, research. But was uh, the Northeast uh, broadly Manchuria somewhere you'd spent any time previous to that, or, or was this a sort of totally new avenue?
0: Uh, totally new, and, um, and for anyone, I, I mean, I so admire your border crossing work, but it's not easy going to deal with. <laughs> Different places, uh, different you know, different regimes. So actually, the move to the northeast was was new for me and um, a bit fraught, but uh, exhilarating at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's uh, in the spirit of the uh, of the region. Uh, it was it, it was ever thus or something. Um, well, that's uh, that's great. Um, I guess uh, that leads us fairly sort of naturally onto some broad kind of uh, introductory. Um, uh, ideas around around the book as a whole um, and you introduce the book uh, with an introduction that uh, actually focuses on an episode of uh, flying or perhaps falling voles <laughs> um, we, we might return to the voles uh, a little a little later on but perhaps you can begin with uh, a bit more of a description of uh, I guess what Manchuria is where it is you know for the purposes of, uh, of grounding our discussion
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right so uh, y- you know in many ways this whole book uh, uses as a springboard the pioneering work of Mark Elliott, whose uh, article, Limits of Tartary, really uh, inspired me to think about this region as a, a, an imaginary construct, uh, but one that was full of, of political, social, and cultural import. So, you know, uh, several of my interlocutors said, well, how can you write a book about a place that doesn't exist? And I said, well, the book in some ways is is just uh, engaging with that process of imagining this place. Um, so the idea that, and, and, you know, I'm trained as an historian of China, so we naturally slip into Dongbei, right? Uh, but what i felt was somewhat lacking in the scholarship or or the scholarship is out there but it, it uh maybe not brought together was the fact that you know f- for other observers this might not be Dongbei, but uh you know Shibei, or it, in other words the the place in the way the place was imagined relied upon the perspective and locale of the imaginer. And I simply wanted to initially start bringing in more of these voices, more of these perspectives to uh, try to feel out the very fuzzy uh, entity that is Manchuria from these multiple perspectives.
1: Mm -hmm. And I mentioned a few of those in very general terms uh, in the introduction, but uh, perhaps perhaps you could say a few more things about who the people are that have sought to know it and why it is that so many different people, different constituencies have, have sought an understanding.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, I think my, my impulse was to start with the various polities going around <laughs> the region. Uh, although simultaneously I thought I shouldn't go from skirting around the outside to, talking from the inside out uh, so uh, I think it, it took a while for China scholars to realize the impo- for China scholars to realize the importance of this region for Koreans and for Korea for for the uh, you know uh, observers uh, on the Korean Peninsula going back uh, centuries so so forays, You know, up north beyond the peninsula itself, uh, I think were very important in understanding what the spiritual, in particular, spiritual importance of this region. Uh, When I try to move to northern perspectives, um, here I have something of a mishmash of, of Manchu surveyors who, who in the early Qing. Right, with the help of indigenous guides, go all the way up to what I, I like to consider a uh, the same longitude. Excuse me, the same latitude as the as the Aleutian Islands. You know, if you if you, I spend a lot of time on Google Maps, just <laughs> zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out, in lieu of having a spaceship, um, and 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 seeing the the northern expanse of of the uh, Qing empire as it was kind of sketched in uh but I chose to look at a 19th century moment when european sciences european based sciences came to the region and in chapter 4 looking at uh, botanists who for me fortunately wrote in german since that is a language that I'm conversant with uh and, and their perspectives coming from, well, an, an empire situated to the north, but really coming from the, the western regions and coming into this this uh, locale. So I look so European science really coming in from the north and the west, uh, and, and uh, you know really the, the book starts with the you already mentioned the uh, the early Qing uh, Han Chinese exiles. And there, I think I thought a great deal about what it would take to walk, <laughs> or to go in an ox cart from the Jiangnan environment to to Ninguta. Uh, so, so everyone, most of these perspectives are moving in, and and I emphasize the journey, and I emphasize the the shifting perspectives, but. Um, there are, for me, very, there were difficult moments to, to, to sketch out, but moments where I could see more local perspectives. And in order to do that, mostly I turned to things like uh, shaman's chants, or uh, the botanical knowledge of, of uh, Heja or Nanai people. So, so those were some of the multiple perspectives that I tried to weave in.
1: Mm, yeah that's great and uh and it's a it's a sort of rich sense of these different well precisely ways of knowing uh that that really forms the the the, the patchwork of the book which is nevertheless one that's so kind of uh cumulative and, and layered because it also sort of follows this broadly kind of chronological structure in in, in a sort of broad sweep uh whilst not just so sort of rigidly moving from one time to the next. Um, but since you mentioned the European kind of uh, often Russian mediated um, uh, various botanists and other, uh, I guess, practitioners of uh, whatever kind of post-enlightenment uh, European science type, um, uh, type methods, um, those are the people... I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest uh, an Anglophone academic reader at a Western institution might have the most natural sympathy with. So I wonder when it comes to understanding different epistemological constructions or ways of exactly approaching this space how do how do you see uh, is the best way to get at these different ways of knowing given that you know there is the natural quote unquote understanding of the relationship for example between Person and nature, person and environment, that that you as a writer might have. How how do you sort of try to delve into these, whether they're as you say indigenous or or just pre uh, pre kind of Euro globalization type uh, ways of thinking about things.
0: No, that's that's a great question. And um, what I tried to do, and and it's a method that he, he. evolved over the course of the years that I, I traveled to to this region and, and, and walked, walked the terrain. What I really tried to do was, I think, and, and chapter four about the botanists is maybe the clearest uh, discussion of this method. I tried to gauge, uh, not judge, but um, sketch out degrees, different degrees of entanglement. I think you used the word entanglement at one point, and this became important to me as I was writing the book. The book, I I really see the book primarily as a methodological, a stab at a methodological intervention, as opposed to any particular, um, uh, stating any particular set of facts about Manchuria or about the history of China. Um, so what my, my curiosity really revolved about what was the Im- embodied engagement between uh, humans and the environment uh, among humans and and uh, other than human to, to create what, what, you know, many scholars today will call more than human world. Uh, and so I really turned to what I could best understand is physical engagement. Um, And so, especially with that fourth chapter on botany, trying to understand the actual techniques, the physical techniques and the ways of seeing that resulted in European botanical knowledge. And the physical techniques and ways of sensing Uh, not always just visual, but also tactile and uh, what I call visceral knowledge in ingestion-based sensing, uh, how these embodied forms of knowledge uh, were conducted and how they might differ. So that's, uh, and to do that in some ways, I just relied on my own body, uh, my own body traveling through space, my own body... uh, uh, looking out over a terrain. Uh, so, uh, as, as faulty and full of, uh, you know, caveats as that technique might be, I found it, uh, could be a, a good illuminating start.
1: Mm. Well, I mean that, that personal, uh, sort of, uh, reflection on, on positionality is something that does form a, a really helpful, uh, component of the, uh, scene setting in the introduction of the book. Um, what did you What did you actually do? I guess uh, is the is, is the direct uh, the direct way of putting the next question I have about about uh, sort of your methodological approach, um, both in terms of selection of sources. As you say, there was this starting point, perhaps with a a moment in a much more recent sort of historical time and within a Chinese context. But how did you sort of go about? Um, foraging perhaps uh, might be the right word for for (laughs) your your source base and also yeah in terms of embodied time spent in the region how how did that uh, sort of pan out
0: yeah so another fantastic question Uh, coming from someone who has such you know deep experiences uh, in the region itself uh, my foraging started in the place where I was taught how to forage, which is the archive. And it it could be, and of course, you know, my first book is is heavily archival based. And so that was what I knew, that's what I loved, and for all of its frustrations. But um, of course, the time spent researching this book was also the time during which archives in in, uh, the PRC became there were more and more strictures to, uh, to access. And, and this became actually, I think for the Northeast became apparent even earlier than it may have for other places. Uh, so there was, you know, in some ways, this is a book born of frustration. It's, it's lemonade from the lemons that I started to encounter. The other bunch of lemons besides the archive, uh, uh, so, the really, the main inspiration was my first climb up uh, bekdu uh, Changbai Shan, uh, the Long White Mountain, or uh, Whitehead Mountain. And um, so, that was in 06. And climbing the mountain, so I'd been doing a lot of reading, and was uh, already in the mode of thinking of this as a sacred place. And... When I arrived there, two things to the region. Two things struck me. One, I couldn't see it. I couldn't find it until I was actually on top of it, or uh, about to be on top of it. Or I didn't realize I was already uh, uh, halfway up the mountain before I realized, "Oh, this is this is the mountain." So, just sensing the terrain from the position of being in the terrain was such a revelation to me. The other thing was getting to the top, descending down to the caldera lake, and not being able to go around the lake, which for the, the region, the, the, the mountain and the lake itself was probably the most beautiful place I've ever been on, on this earth. And um, the, I, I had an intensely emotional reaction to the fact that borders uh, inhibited my ability to engage with this environment. Now, you know, one thing I thought about a lot since writing the book was, well, perhaps (laughs) it's a good, you know, those borders are keeping my white butt from (laughs) my white colonialist butt. In other words, it's like, who am I? Who am I, given my own positionality, to to rage against borders? But what it did, what that experience did was uh, prompt me to start thinking of border-transcending ways. Of perceiving these environments to the best of of my ability. So, um, um, most of my travels were on the PRC side of the border, but um, every place that I wrote about, I traveled to. Um, it got more and more difficult as 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 the years progressed, um, and my last my last stop was uh, I think twenty seventeen in what I kept calling the Sino-Soviet border to my colleagues. I realized, whoops, uh, um, not Sino-Soviet, but the, the uh, Sanjiang Pinyuan, the, 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 the area where the uh, Yusuri and uh, Amur and Songhua rivers come together. So those, those, those were the things I tried to do. Uh, but it was because I was frustrated primarily because I turned to the earth because I was frustrated by the paper archive
1: mm, mm. well uh, that it, it doesn't read only as a sort of last resort I think it uh, <laughs> it has a very strong and uh, uh, significant place within the overall picture um, and incidentally I, I'd uh, add as a footnote that I think lots of people actually locally would also refer to that border area as uh, sino-soviet or at least the <laughs> the country across the Across the river of Sulien, uh, a Soviet <laughs> Union that, that's still still very much alive in the uh, in the consciousness. So uh, I, I don't think uh, you have too much to worry. All you were doing was voicing emic uh, emic perspectives there, so um, no problem. Um, anyway, well, that's great, Ruth. Thank you for that sort of uh, overall grounding of uh, how the project came together. Um, so as I mentioned already, the uh, chapters unfold in a sort of broadly chronological perspective, but that isn't really the main point, I think, because each one of them encapsulates at least one, if not several, uh, different uh, ways of knowing this place that have been practiced between, broadly, I suppose, the uh, mid to late 17th century and and, uh, the late 20th century. Um, We begin uh, kind of in that that vein, Uh, I suppose veins being a key term also that arises here uh, in relation to dragons, but with uh, with the Qing and and especially the sort of early to mid Qing, the, the kind of uh, expansion and, and efflorescence of this vast, uh, ultimately multinational, multi ethnic empire, uh, which arose in many regards from this from this region, um, could you say something then about how uh, this region, which looked at from a contemporary China as Dongbei, right, as you've said, northeast China, um, looks like a kind of peripheral space? Um, how did different constituencies within the Qing empire ruled by Manchus, but peopled largely by not Manchus, in many cases by Han Chinese, how did those different constituencies look at this region and attempt to understand it? So um, that's a,
0: that's, <laughs> that, that is that's really the crux of the book, right? That's what I try to do throughout each chapter. So um, I, I, I think... The one, I guess, the way I might want to approach that question is to suggest an a, a kind of a overarching trajectory of those particular viewpoints. Um, the the book itself really um, is an exercise in exploding monoliths. Uh, I, in many ways, simply want to state that there is no there, there, uh, but that we have to try to grasp and, and hold within our minds these multiple perspectives. Uh, and so I do, I know I, I, I start in some ways simply because I was entranced by their poetry. I start by looking at the, the Han Chinese exiles who journey there. Uh, Um, part of that of the reason I did that was because I had a strong sense that for many observers whose writings we have, including people like Manchu emperors, there was always a journey involved to this place, and it existed in the mind prior to it existing in the eye. Um, So um, the, the overall trajectory in in the expanse of the book is really to to think about how a place that is thought of as as a, a center of a of, of the dragon vein the the uh, powerful uh, earthbound earthborn uh, s- spiritual uh, resonances that emerge from from the uh, sacred white mountain and and the the tombs of the of the progenitors of the of the imperial line, how this goes from being the sacred space to being a space where, uh, the earth itself is, uh, exploited for different forms of energy. Uh, I I think that, you know, I talk a little bit about energy transitions that, uh, chi, the, 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 the energies, uh, that are seen as emanating from, from, um, the White Mountain and through traveling through Dragon Veins in Manchuria uh, are very much, in some ways, mined. Uh, M i n e d mined by the the Qing Imperium. But uh, there is, and, and you know, along with the actual, you know, things like furs and and freshwater pearls and ginseng, there, you know. The, mentor has always been a, a place of, of extraction, but I tried to show an overall shift in perspectives on extraction that happens in the late 19th and early 20th century with the rise of, of global capitalism and um, the hitching of science and technology to the wagon of, of capitalist exploitation of, of of natural terrain, so that's you know that's really the the arc of the book. If um, and all of the little pieces of different perspectives, while at one in in one way I'm simply I'm trying to explode the region. Simultaneously, I'm also trying to sh- sh- uh, show a, a temporal arc. And changes in epistemology and approaches to to uh, to the environment.
1: Hmm. So, in this early to mid kind of Qing period uh, with which you begin, and which broadly I guess is covered in the first couple of chapters, which deal respectively with these landscapes or narratives of, of exile in this landscape, uh, and then secondly with uh, the sixteen eighty two Kangxi expedition to uh, this region. Um, you you do kind of um, i guess uh, i guess describe ways of understanding this place that rely variously on on poetic forms on ways of comparing the landscape to known legible landscapes uh outside kind of uh, or or you know elsewhere in in china in the case of some of these uh, chinese poets um so did you see those as being um kind of quite distinct uh Kind of ways of understanding uh, the, the the region as a, as a whole that that may be reinforced the separateness of of Qing and or of Manchu uh, rulers of the Qing and the Han constituents. I know this is you know you mentioned I, I only asked this because you mentioned drawing on Mark Elliott's work and of course a lot of uh, New Qing history, if you like, and exploration of this period, including in this region, has uh, debated the kind of Qing universalism versus. Uh, or, or as, as it relates to a sort of Manchu particularism, did, did you see there being a kind of Manchu way of looking at this place versus a Han Chinese way of looking at this place? Or is it not uh, quite so simple uh, as that?
0: I don't think it's, a, I, I, I don't think it's as simple as that. I, um, and I, I, am not sure if I was aiming for an explicit comparison um, I you know others uh, some fantastic scholarship David Bellow um, you know Schlesinger's book on on World Trim and Fur uh, really talk about the the imperial court's perspective on on their northeastern territories as as a place of you know both of natural purity but also as a place that that provides the the court and and the Qing world with their their luxury goods. So, uh, when I shifted from the Han Chinese exiles who are trying to make sense of a place where the sun doesn't set and uh, uh, where plants seem different but they seem the same at the same time, uh, I'm I'm suggesting that there's a a sense of shifting borders. I I don't, uh, mental borders, uh, as, as the, the Qing empire, uh, makes this, this region part of, of the larger polity. Um, and, and I think that even the, the Qing court as, as, as represented by this, the, the, the second, uh, Eastern, um, this, the second shun, um that Kangxi leads uh, is also grappling with a, a place that's relatively foreign to most of them, and a sense of shifting boundaries, shifting beneath their feet as as they they move forward. And the I think the one consistent thing that we see out of uh, you know I look I, I use Gao Shuqi's. Uh, Account for beasts, account and, and 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 some poems ostensibly written by Kangxi along the way, uh, and and Shilu and things like that. Uh, the one consistent thing I see is is Kangxi almost in in a, almost desperately uh, using violence to stamp this place as yes, this is a, a violence of course against um, against other species. Uh, as as a way of stamping a, a an imperial uh, imprint on, on this region,
1: right through so hunting not, and stuff, right? It's it, the uh, hunts, it, it's the, it's, yeah. it,
0: the hunts, uh, the hunt. and also just the fact that they, you know, i would reading this stuff and like, dude, it's March. Why? I mean, obviously, we know why he wanted. He, I, I do think that Kangxi knew what he was doing by taking his, his entourage up there. It's like Vermont in what it's called mud season, right? You don't go anywhere without your four wheel drive. Uh, but it, so it's also, it, in some ways, inflicting violence on the bodies of his own courtiers and 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 uh, retinue. Mm-hmm.
1: In well, order I, to I don't, hmm. some might suggest that four wheel drive uh, users have the same imperial <laughs> attitude that. Uh, <laughs> someone self-designated as the son of heaven uh, might possess but uh <laughs> yeah I, I i'm sure he didn't have to personally worry about too many of the uh the hardships um but uh yeah i think uh i think that that makes a lot of sense as you as you said this this uh was a in many ways you know um well a, a pr- process and a way of understanding this place or a process uh, of grasping at an understanding of this place that defies easy categorization into uh, this was this was how Manchu people saw it or this is how uh, Chinese people from the the nadi from the central part of the Empire saw it um, because this place is simultaneously a source and a kind of uh, flow outflowing point of uh, manchu spiritual and sort of quasi ethnic legitimacy, but also somewhere that is a destination where those same Manchu rulers send exiles and set banish people right from the from the core of the empire. so it, it really doesn't fit so neatly into uh this is what this place was for for these people i think uh, I think you're right there um but then uh yeah, so moving into uh the kind of mid mid part of the book. Uh, we have an entire chapter dedicated to uh, the mountain, which you mentioned earlier, Pekdasan or Changbai Shan, which exactly as you've mentioned is something that uh, is quite hard to sort of identify as a mountain on approach, and but when, once you're there, you're in no doubt at all that you're at the summit of something extremely large and powerful. Um, but could you say then a bit more about why it was so significant? It's a very uh, simplistic question, maybe, but um, what what made this mountain uh, so significant to the various uh, people that surrounded mm. it. Um,
0: well, it, you know, of course, I just automatically went to a modern explanation in my brain, and that's it's the volcano. <laughs> um, you know, but I do think there's something to it, and in the in the book, I, I start. Uh, I tried really hard because I was critiqued on this point to avoid doing what's a what had in, in the past was a fairly common environmental history approach, which was first you situate this place in its reality by using scientific literature and assigned this perspective that, that that data to, uh, and then you move into what your pe- your people's thought thought about the place, and and uh, so. In in chapter three, um, what I try to do is um, citing the White Mountain. Uh, What I try to do was present science as one way of thinking about the place, and it's a language that we moderns understand. So here here I go. I'm going to do this anyway, and explain uh, that. You know, using uh, ice cores pulled from Greenland and, and tephra mounds uh, in Hokkaido and, and in these sorts of ways, uh, scientists uh, have informed us that in a certain in such and such a year, there was a massive, massive eruption of this volcano. Uh, and it happened at a time of political turmoil in the in the nor- in Northeast Asia. Um, and even though there's no written records of it, in the way uh, you know Vesuvius blows, and <laughs> there's lots of folks to, around to, to write about it. Um, but if if, if if you know Pictasan blows, we don't really have the, the written records prior to more or less an early modern period. But I, I I think that it's it's the um, the explosive nature. I mean, it, when you climb it, I, I never really thought about it as a volcano. I probably should have, since it was rumbling at the time. I just didn't know it. But for for people in that region, knowing that the, the explosive nature of it, um, that you and and when it the millennial. Um, eruption uh, sent a plume up into the sky that was, at least according to the way, as much as scientists can figure it out, that was um, more dramatic than the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So I, I would say, I would venture a guess that that sort of um, activity from a, from a, a natural, for, from a formation in your neighborhood would, would cause people to think of it in a certain way.
1: Mm, no that's uh, that's understandable and i guess temporarily i think you you suggest that it it lies at a kind of point at which it would have been uh, a kind of fairly fertile moment for uh, yeah nourishing narratives of of ethnic and national origin on the part of uh, of both manchus right to the north uh, of the mountain and to of koreans too uh, to the south who see uh, Tangun, this uh, legendary ancestor to have sort of uh, arisen from this mountain and indeed contemporary north koreans who see uh another uh sort of spiritual ancestor in the form of kim jong-il to have uh, emerged from this mountain but uh in any case that's uh yeah that that's a sort of great um i guess uh core pivot uh, in many ways of the of, of the book as a whole there in in, in chapter three uh just as the mountain itself is a, a sort of pivotal point of, of of the region, even though it li- itself it lies at the very edge, uh, one very southern eastern edge of the of the region as a, as a whole. Um, but yeah, you've you've actually provided a link quite well there to thinking in the latter part of the book about the sort of eruption of uh, these modern, uh, you know, used analytically ways of looking at this region uh, that come in. In the very end part of the Qing, uh, with the also uh, arrival of the end part of the Russian Empire into this area, um, and you know then subsequently over the 20th century. So once you get to the point where you're describing, uh, as, you, as we've mentioned already, botanists as well as uh, mining prospectors and fossil hunters, and uh, also plague scientists later, all kinds of other peoples. How do uh, efforts to understand this place? change uh, and does does it all change at once or you know is there a sort of layered transition from these more complex ways of knowing this landscape does the spiritual end up interacting with the scientific to, to put it in very blunt terms
0: well here i think it's important for us to realize that there are spiritual underpinnings that it, we simply uh, for science we simply typically don't call them spiritual underpinnings uh but there are i think in the book i call them fant- uh, fantasies which um there are urges um m- mythologies um ideas that drive science as well and um here, you know, the underpinning this i uh, the the underpinning spirituality, as it were, is uh, for for what happens in the 20th century is is this idea, this myth of the potential for always expanding uh, extraction of resources, always expanding uh, progress, always expanding uh, wealth uh, that. That that drives that is as at the heart of of the forms of exploitation, uh, environmental exploitation, uh, and the sciences that that uh, undergird that uh, exploit those exploitations of resources. Uh, so I I think that what you'd find primarily is that the texts reflect a shift in spirituality. <laughs> As, as, as a as opposed to s- spiritual pers- and you know here I'm messing with the word spirit spirit and spiritual right uh, but you know if you want to call it intellectual underpinnings that 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 people feel in their hearts and it drives them <laughs> perhaps we're talking about the same the same sort of thing albeit with different outcomes
1: mm. I think centering the people who are working in harmony or in in sympathy with these sorts of uh, broad ways of thinking is probably the best approach, right? Because then we stop short of saying that modern science is uh, just another religion, or you know, not that that is a totally indefensible position, but it's it's a very hard to it's a very complicated to defend sort of a sort of a position, or at least would require the book to be about lots of things that aren't anything to do with uh with manchuria uh so i think uh I, th- I think it is your it's your person-centered your character-centered sort of approach here uh that really you know brings out those those sorts of uh, shifting commitments um so i mean perhaps if we can just yeah say a few things about some of these specific specific people um Maybe even jumping forward to around the time that you said was your sort of entry point to uh, the project as a whole. Um, how does uh, the kind of the scientific approach during the twentieth century, especially among uh, among Chinese scientists, but perhaps also with the help in some cases of of Soviet ones or other other figures in this region, to things like plague um, and then ultimately those flying voles as well that we mentioned. Uh, what does that what does that tell us about Sort of place of Manchuria within a kind of emerging um, new Chinese order uh, in the twentieth century.
0: Well, I talk about the flying voles, so the uh, rodents that were allegedly dropped from planes, uh, from airplanes, and 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 land land in uh, ac- across a series of villages in in. Uh, Heilongjiang, not
1: this 1952, I think, right? The, uh, uh, yes, that's yeah.
0: that's. I guess I'm, I'm going. I'm going there. Um, I it's a, it's a pretty short chapter that follows a much longer chapter about plague research as done uh, by Chinese and Japanese scientists in the earlier 20th century. And I the the title of the chapter is scientific redemption. So what I saw. Uh being unable to <laughs> solve the problem, the question of whether or not it actually happened, um, uh, think of that problem as not particularly interesting for a, a historian of science. Uh, what I try to probe is the the uses of these scientific investigations for the building of a new of new China, this new polity that uh, is, uh, effecting control over a place that has been contested for really uh, centuries at this point. So uh, what I saw uh, was th- th- a very clear attempt at uh, using science to indicate what was the nature that belonged within the borders of China, of new China, uh, and what was quite interesting though was that the scientists who were generating this um the chinese scientists who were generating this data um most if not all of them had backgrounds uh, their their education was uh, it their instruction in science was was acquired abroad and in the case of the epidemiologists and bacteriologists that worked on the germ warfare investigations in uh, dongbei These Chinese scientists had studied actually in Japan during, or in either Manchukuo and Manchukuo um, establishments, or many had gone to Japan during during the uh, after after nineteen thirty one. So I, you know, it it was I couldn't delve into that uh, as deeply as I wanted to. Simply noted these uh, educational backgrounds and recognized that there was redemption. There were redemption, redemptive projects going on all around, through using science to redeem the area from its history of of uh, conquest, domination, and, and, and uh, attempted colonization, uh, to redeem it from its reputation as a as a disease, singularly diseased place, uh, and potentially on the part of the scientists themselves. Uh, Attempts to redeem their uh, their pasts uh, of cooperating, almost said collaborating, cooperating with with international science, which was uh, you know intertwined with imperialism in in the mid twentieth century.
1: Mm, Yeah, I think that sort of using science, uh, a new Chinese based PRC science, to combat. Japanese imperial science, uh, as you mentioned, uh, some of the you know kind of horrible experiments and things done in Harbin uh, during the Japanese colonial period, um, and indeed also to combat, uh, I guess, earlier iterations of these imperial colonial kind of uh, um, models, which have in- entered the region from Russia and and then more broadly in China from other colonial powers. It's a very interesting. Uh, sort of case study and a site for uh, exploring these different ways of knowing and the power that comes with understanding a place, um, you know, a very interesting comparison with these earlier overlapping ways of knowing the region that we've discussed already between those that sort of have their roots in kind of Manchu particularistic explanations of what's going on or Korean, maybe a bit less explored in our conversation. But um, I think uh, the sort of way that these paradigms you know, are sort of also advanced to sort of claim or to defend or to incorporate, in many cases, geography and nature increasingly incorporate, I guess, later as nation statehood is sort of a big motive uh, for, you know, wanting to discuss or describe this region. Um, That's, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a absolutely kind of uh, fascinating and many layers tapestry that we haven't had uh, time to get into at every level, unfortunately, but um, perhaps to sort of uh, close us out or to bring us back to uh, what you said yourself was the final stop on your own personal uh, kind of um, fieldwork expeditions to this area of the Sanjiang plain we end with the sent down youth of the uh, cultural revolution era and uh, this kind of uh, final mass uh, form of understanding this area and um, That as the kind of apogee or the final point of of knowing that is visited in the book. Where does that leave us in terms of understanding the many layers that go all the way back to that late Qing period? Uh, Have these things all, do you think, contributed equally when it comes to knowing Manchuria as as we or as people might today? Um, And do you think this is something very specific to this region or could a similar kind of investigation of, Ways of knowing a place be conducted anywhere else.
0: Those are fantastic questions, and uh, I'll, I'll give it a try here. Um, there's, there would be. You're correct that I, I end the book with the sent down youth, and um, of course the the cultural outpouring of of this group makes it easier to to. Um, you know, there's just so much rich, so many rich sources there to work with um, that it, it, it becomes a bit easier to write a vivid, embodied history uh, using these sources. But, you know, there could have been a, diff- a very different way of writing this book, and that would have been to have tried to understand perspectives on the region from from the viewpoint of those who labored there so I end I end the book with uh, really suggesting that uh, that the knowledge built through labor is uh, perhaps it is sort of apogee of embodied um, embodied knowledge and forms the broadest base of of what it means to know a place people who who who's whose bodies in some ways, I mean, of course, for the sent down youth are sacrificed uh, to, to, to maintain human life in a place. So there could have been a different way, you know, I could have tried to have traced a labor history back to, say, the quasi serfs who, who work, who worked on, on Qing manorial farms back going into, into the 1600s, Um, you know, there's there's scholarship on this, um, but uh, one could turn it on, try to turn it on its head and make it an embodied. Uh, try to make it an embodied, entangled history, uh, perhaps by looking at um, farming implements, for example. I think is a is a looking at material culture, the material culture of labor is a could be an interesting way of going about it. But that's you know that's not that's not what I did. But if I were to take the concluding spirit of that last chapter and work it through the entire book. That's that's what I would do, and to suggest that indeed it's through labor that places are ultimately known.
1: Mm. I mean, that, that kind of, just as an aside, draws me to think a little about the way that uh, some of these uh, early uh, PRC or, or kind of high Mao era Uh, exiles or or sent down people ejected from the center uh, are often seen as the if there are such a thing the kind of good settlers uh, in some of the peripheral regions of of China right whether it's uh, here is a different case particularly given the historical population of the area but Xinjiang for example is somewhere where people who came down came there at this point are seen as somehow a bit more attached you know the the whatever, Lao the, the old Xinjiang people. I mean, the, the kind of sent-down youth of the mid-20th century in Dongbei maybe have a similar labor-born attachment and some claim to an embodied uh, a, a sort of uh, attachment to that land. Uh, I don't know if that's over-romanticizing uh, histories of violent settlement and dispossession. Uh, if, if it is, uh, I, I'm very sorry about that. But uh, it just kind of occurs to me that it does seem that in general you sort of earn a little bit of cred uh in your way of understanding and way of being attached to, to a place if you've kind of yeah labored there as you suggest
0: yeah yeah so that you know it's hard for me and given that it was a mass phenomenon then we simply have to acknowledge uh, I, I, uh, there i think acknowledge that this is is a a uh Gener- particularly generative way of of knowing Manchuria at, at this point in in our in our history, uh, I think what I'm trying, what I was trying to, if there's a value established there, it's it's the value of labor um, in and of itself. So um, skirting perhaps some of the difficult political questions that you've just. <laughs> that just, that's that entirely fine.
1: No, I, <laughs> I, I should probably skirt them more myself. But no, I think uh, that's uh, that's great, Ruth. Well, thank you very much. Um, that's been a really great uh, exposition of the book as a whole. Uh, as I mentioned already, there's an absolutely enormous amount of uh, extremely rich and uh, un get to material in there in <laughs> within a one-hour conversation. Uh, so thank you very much for, for appearing. Um, before uh, we let you go, though, it would be great uh, if you could say something about what you've been working on since uh, Manchuria. Uh, I gather that it's uh, not really quite, uh, it's, it's, it's not uh, necessarily quite as far from your own base as this book was.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, although th- in, in some ways there's inspiration from my my. Conclusions that, uh, that it's it behooves us to look at the local to understand a uh, broader phenomenon. Uh, I am working on Chinese medicine in Nashville, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, the where where Vanderbilt University is and the place where I've lived for the past 15 years years. Mm. Uh, so it's a combination of of contemporary history uh and uh more uh, sort of anthropological uh, you know um observations of of what Chinese medicine uh means to practitioners and to patients, to sufferers in the community that I'm part of. So that's that's my current project. A little bit easier to research in these pandemic years. Um, mm-hmm. But really, I think there's, there's a continuity with this book because of my uh, obsession, shall we say, with, with exploring the local.
1: Right. And also perhaps with different, uh, uh, different ways of knowing things, the, in this case, perhaps the body and, uh, and the, the, the sort of, I don't know, zoological dimension of human existence. <laughs> um, I,
0: yes, yes.
1: Anyway, fantastic. Thank you very much, Ruth. Uh, it's been really great talking to you today.
0: Oh, I've had a a wonderful time. Thank you so much, Ed.
1: And listeners, thank you too, as ever, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.